If you are uh, just now joining us, I want to welcome you to worship at 11 o'clock at Bethany United Methodist Church, where we're leading people to experience God's love, uh, to um, know Jesus Christ, and to grow in His image. Uh, what I want to start with this morning before we get into the sermon is uh, sharing a statement that our, our bishop released this week. This was a statement he put out on June 5th um, that has resonated with me, and I want to read this to you this morning. He writes, Dear friends of the Rio Texas Conference, several people have asked if I would be releasing a statement about the killing of George Floyd. I've read helpful statements from other bishops, pastors, and community leaders, and I have had to ask myself why I feel such an inner reluctance to prepare one. I served as a bishop in Missouri when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. He died a couple of blocks from a United Methodist Church. I wrote a statement. A week later, I wrote another one as events unfolded, and another one after that. To be honest, I've lost count of the number of statements I have written about the killings of black people during the 16 years that I have been a bishop, and it grieves my spirit to wonder whether those words have done any good. Statements from leaders can be important in the moment, but only go so far. Violence against black people and other people of color finds its roots in racism, systemic and profound, and forms such a continuing pattern that statements often sound weak, awkward, ineffective, empty, and utterly insufficient. The continuous video coverage of frustration, anger, and grief in the streets of Minneapolis, New York, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C., can have the effect of making the current crisis appear far away, removed from where many of us live and work. Yet this coverage also puts the reality right before us with graphic images, some of which come from our own communities. What is clear is that the dynamics of racism exist in varying degrees in every community served by the Rio Texas Conference as well as in our churches. Conversations about race are difficult. They are hard work. They take courage, openness, listening, learning. Exploring issues of access, equality, and human dignity is work that requires humility and a willingness to explore assumptions and perceptions that deeply shape us in ways we usually are not even conscious of. This is kingdom work. It is the work the Lord requires of us to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with our God. As the Holy Spirit descended upon the gathering at Pentecost, people of diverse nations, languages, and races suddenly understood one another as never before. How can we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in this season to place ourselves in the most advantageous circumstances to learn what God would have us know? This moment provides an opening for us to learn things that we do not know and to see what ordinarily we do not see about how other people experience us, our churches, and our communities. We may not recognize how we play a role in perpetuating injustices that other people experience. I pray that our conference, our churches, our pastors, and the everyday disciples that seek to faithfully live out the commission of Christ are willing to lean into the hard conversations rather than to turn away from them. My heart breaks every time I think of Mr. Floyd and his final moments of life. May this season not merely break our hearts, but break open our hearts 
so that we may grow in grace and in the knowledge and love of God. Yours in Christ, Robert Schnazy, Bishop of the Rio Texas Conference of the United Methodist Church. I have to say that I resonated a lot with his words. Uh, one of my uh, experiences or mem- memories this week was that uh, just under five years ago, uh, my wife Cindy and I went uh, downtown one evening to Metropolitan AME Church uh, to be in a service there that was both a, a memorial for the members of Emmanuel AME in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, but also a time for the faith community to come together and stand in solidarity against that kind of uh, hatred and violence. And uh, the place was packed that night. Uh, the sanctuary was full and the, and the downstairs was full and there were people standing outside. Uh, it, it was a great service and a great celebration and also a great statement of our faith. At the end of the service, uh, those of us who are faith leaders in the community, we were invited to sign a statement in Austin uh, that the, the faith community in Austin uh, denounced and was opposed to racism in the community. And so uh, that was upstairs. And um, so uh, we, we made our way over to where that statement was so that I could put my name on it. And as I signed it, what I, what I started to notice was that uh, a lot of the other signatures from Methodist pastors that I knew were decades old. And I looked at the statement and realized that it was decades old and that this had been passed around and signed for for decades in the Austin community, Um, and and here we were again. Um, You know, in the midst of these moments, um, in our anger and and, and our grief and our hurt, uh, we want to cry out and we need to cry out, and that cry needs to be expressed and it needs to be heard. Um, We need to address this, but it's not sufficient. Uh, we, We really aren't just dealing with an idea, and we really aren't just dealing with the system. Uh, we really are dealing with all of us. Uh, and, and there's a change in the hearts uh, that needs to happen that, that can't be done simply and quickly. Uh, so I, I want to encourage you as we move through the weeks ahead. Um, I mean, I know right now there's a lot of, uh, a lot of emotion around this, but I want to encourage you uh, to be in prayer and, and to join in with Bishop Snazy's wish that perhaps in this time, instead of just having our hearts break, for the pain that we're experiencing, that we see being experienced, um, God might break open our hearts and and do transformative work within us. With that, I'm going to turn to the sermon uh, this morning. uh, The sermon's about means of grace, and and I want to say we we did a whole series on this a few years ago, so I'm flying through this material this morning and kind of touching on some things as we move through it, but uh, buckle your seatbelts and stay with me if you can. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to start with a little definition of grace. This is kind of a a shorthand version of the more formal definition, God's unmerited, unearned, loving action on our behalf. And one of the things I always like about this is that it's, it's God's action. It's not just that God loves us, but God acts in love for us. And there's nothing we can do to earn or merit that. We often read Romans 5 as a way of uh, re- referencing that, but I want you to hear that that appears all throughout the New Testament. This is out of the first letter of John. Uh, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Uh, that, that God in Christ would choose to lay down his life for us before we've done anything to earn that. 
and, and so we're, we're given this grace. I mean, it's, it's a gift given to us. Wesley understood, however, that not only was it free, but it was called, what he called free and cooperant. It was given to you, but, but you had to cooperate with it. Uh, it's kind of like if you were having a, a Christmas at your house and uh, people were passing out the gifts and, and somebody comes and hands you your Christmas gift, you still have to decide to accept it and to unwrap it. You could say, nope, nope, no thanks. I don't want that one. And you could refuse it. Or you can accept it. But you have to cooperate to accept it and, and unwrap it. And that's the same thing with God's grace. It's given to us as a gift. God offers it to us as a gift at every point in time. And yet we have to choose to open our hands and receive it and unwrap it into our lives. Uh, so it's, it's, it's free, but it also requires our cooperation. Uh, when Wesley uh, talks about grace, uh, one of the ways Andrew Thompson, who uh, wrote a, a book on this, he talks about it is that it's, it's unconditional. God comes to each of us with the message that he loves us as we are, no matter what. It's transformational. God does not leave us as we are, but rather transforms our hearts and lives. And it's invitational. The Lord Jesus calls us and empowers us to join him in the work of the gospel. Um, there's an old uh, saying that kind of uh, summarizes that, the old one that says, you know, God loves me just as I am, but God loves me too much to leave me this way. Um, so uh, it's, it's unconditional, but it's transformational. Not only God gives it to us a gift, but, but once we accept it, it begins to change who we are. And as it changes who we are, then we get invited to share in the kingdom work that God is doing. So it has these kind of elements to grace. And, and I want you to hear as we talk about grace, anytime you talk about it in the church, you'll hear us talking about prevenient grace or justifying grace, sanctifying grace, converting grace, all those kinds of different languages. But really, all grace is grace. These are just different ways it works in our lives, but, it, but it's all of one piece. It all holds together. Uh, Wesley would talk about grace when he talks about the means of grace. He divides it into kind of three areas. Uh, the instituted means of grace, which are present in the teaching and example of Christ. They're things that he actually did himself and taught us through his life. Uh, the prudential means of grace. Now, prudential is a word we don't use very often, prudence, uh, which means practical or, or kind of common sense. Uh, it's the way in which the biblical witness in conjunction with practical wisdom for our context takes place. It's us taking the witness that we see in Scripture and applying it into our lives using prudence, common sense, or practical wisdom. Uh, and then there's the general means of grace, which is the more inward contemplative uh, disciplines. Uh, and this is something that runs deeper. We'll talk about this at the end. But this has more to do with the disposition of our heart as we interact with these other means of grace. Uh, the instituted means of grace are ones which will sound very familiar to you and things we think about, baptism, searching the scriptures, prayer, the Lord's Supper, fasting, fellowship. These are all things that we witnessed in the life of Christ that we saw happening in his life and which are commended to us through his life. Uh, Sherry talked a little bit about baptism a second ago in her prayer uh, as we enter into that. And, and we make that commitment uh, in, in the Methodist church, at least, part of our vows, or we make our commitment to resist evil in whatever form it presents itself, and, and that we are going to be witnesses, we're going to be representatives of the kingdom of God in the world. And, and that really, especially in times like this, is an overwhelming kind of task. 
and, and if you've never needed God's help before, you certainly need that in this time. Uh, and we need to be praying for God's Spirit to give us the strength to live into that and to do it properly and, and appropriately and faithfully. Uh, but that's part of our call as baptized members of the body of Christ. Uh, Wesley talked about searching the Scripture. This isn't just opening the Bible and reading the passage uh, or doing a devotional. Uh, this is serious study. This is actually uh, you know, comparing all the different passages in Scripture that speak to a certain topic or issue uh, and reading it across all the breadth, Old Testament to New Testament of Scripture, uh, reading uh, you know, the commentaries on that. I mean, it's, it really is an in-depth kind of study of Scripture which goes far beyond what most of us engage in and yet for Wesley, this was part of it. How, how, do you, how do you live out the gospel if you don't really understand it or know what it is? And so he uses the example we see in Christ's life where he is embodying the scripture and says, this is, this is what we're called to do, to search them out, to understand them, and then to embody them in our own lives. Um, prayer is uh, uh, one of these things that uh, you know, we, we sometimes give um, um, lip service to. But I want to point you to a passage in Mark's gospel uh, where Mark tells us, in the morning while it was still ver very dark, he, Jesus, got up and went out to a deserted place and there he prayed. I, and I keep thinking, you know, if Jesus needed to get up early in the morning and go pray, then you know, maybe, maybe we need to do some of that. Uh, maybe we need to stop doing some of the, the kind of casual praying we do and engage in it in a greater depth, um, seeking a greater power in that. Uh, and, and really leaning into that and praying in it. And we have a number of opportunities this week uh, for prayer. If you go to the, the website and look on the prayer section, uh, there's a number of different ways in which we pray uh, and, and are offering that to you. And I really encourage you to do that. One of the, the things that the prayer ministry here keeps coming back and, and kind of saying to me over and over is, you, you know, pray first. You know, before you decide what you're going to do and step out and do things, pray first. And, and and how do we seek God's wisdom except through prayer? And, and, and if even Jesus needed to get up in the morning and pray, uh, maybe we need to hear that in our own lives and say, okay, before we, before we do things, before we make our plans, before we decide things, we need to pray. Uh, recognizing that sometimes prayer is, is very uh, clear and sometimes it's just uh, you know, with sighs too deep for words, as Paul writes in Romans. Prayer, the Lord's Supper, uh, we're probably going to spend a little more time on that when we actually get to where we can do that again as the body of Christ. Uh, but, but this is an important piece. Uh, this is, uh, for many uh, parts of the Christian church, this is actually the central piece of worship. And, and the oldest reference in Scripture to that actually is in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Uh, this actually predates the Gospels where he writes, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Um, the sacred meal where, where he gathered that night uh, with his disciples that, that even before the Gospels were circulated was, was known throughout the Christian community and recognized and, and is a crucial part of, of how we remain connected with God. Uh, fasting, 
which is one of those things that Mr. Wesley recommended that I think in our culture uh, is, is probably one of the, the, the means of grace that gets practiced the least uh, and uh, because it's, it's challenging and because a lot of people don't understand fully uh, what's all involved in that. And yet I would recommend it to you. It's, it's a place of, of training for our spirit. <clears throat> Someone like Jesus in the wilderness when he was tempted to understand that we are not simply fed by what we put into our mouths, uh, but we're fed by the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the presence of God. And, and fasting properly done directs us to that. Um, there's some really good information about this on uh, the Seedbed website, if you have not uh, looked at that, uh, but explaining that you know fasting doesn't necessarily mean going without food for an extended period of time, especially for those of us that have uh, medical conditions that, that that might not be safe for. Uh, there's different ways to fast. But it's a, it's a way of redirecting our spirits uh, and directing ourselves to God instead of to the things that we normally think of as sustaining us. And then fellowship, the gathering together of the body. If you think about Scripture, uh, think about, especially in the Gospels, how many times does fellowship play into it? I'm, the, the first thing Jesus does when he starts his ministry is he calls the twelve. He calls the twelve. He starts off with fellowship. That's, that's a piece of this gathering of the twelve disciples. And how many times are they at a meal uh, and gathered and, and sitting around the table or, or out in the field and having a meal and sharing meals. I mean, these are, are crucial events that happen all through his ministry. So many important things happen in times of fellowship. Uh, so I, I would invite you to consider, you know, how is it that, that fellowship in your life is not simply uh, getting together to have a good time, but, but how is it an opportunity uh, for God's Spirit to be present and for some kind of of actual holiness to be in the midst of that gathering and and how is that present in your life uh, all of these things are things that the church has long recognized and, and wesley would have grown up with uh, from his early years at, at epworth church uh, this is i mean he grew up in this congregation uh, and grew up in this church uh, and and then at a later date went back and led the congregation for a couple of years before returning to oxford as a tutor so uh, there was a lot of spiritual formation that took place within his family and within this congregation. Uh, as I showed you the other week, this is the baptism font where, where he and his family were baptized. That's the actual one they were baptized at. Uh, this is the chalice, the communion cup that Wesley would have received communion from uh, the first time he ever received it and that he would have used the first time he served it in this church. Uh, and it is still in use in this church uh, to this day. Uh, this is the pulpit uh, that he would have preached from when he was in this church. And this is Bishop Joel Martinez who was with us on that trip uh, in the pulpit. And uh, so, uh, but, but this is also the pulpit that Wesley would have used to, to actually bring the word, to search the scriptures and then bring the word to us. All of these things were part and parcel of his life from very early on. And he understood them, but it really is not until we get past that Aldersgate and Fetters Lane kind of period of time in his life, 1738, uh, that, that really they begin to take on the deeper significance, and he begins to understand them. We're going to talk about that in a minute. The prudential means of grace were those places where you take Scripture uh, and the witness of Scripture, and you begin to work that out in your own context. And he would talk about class meetings and band meetings, uh, you know, class meetings being uh, modeled on the Holy Club. Actually, both of these are modeled on the Holy Club, but class meetings were a little larger group. They could be 10 or 12 people, could be men and women, where they would, would gather uh, and hold each other accountable for their life and faith. The central question was, uh, <clears throat> and this is, how is it with your soul? Or how is your soul prospering? 
uh, is the language that was sometimes used. We sometimes say, how are you and God doing? Uh, but, but how's your walk of faith? And it's a chance to share that with other people and have those conversations and, and not only to encourage each other, but sometimes to challenge each other in the midst of this. Uh, in addition to class meetings, there were band meetings, which were smaller groups, maybe three to five people, uh, all women or all men, where the questions would go either deeper, featuring that question that I think, to me at least, is the one that really is the most that we would struggle with, which is, what sin would you desire to keep secret? Now, I want to tell you something. When you can get a group of people together and you can get some people that you can have that conversation with, and somebody can say, what sin do you desire to keep secret? And you can answer that. There's a tremendous amount of trust and intimacy in that group. Uh, and, and, and it's a great place because, you know, anything that we desire to keep secret from the people around us, we're probably trying to keep secret from God too. And anytime we are trying to keep secrets from God, there's an area of our life we are saying, no, no, you can't come in here. But when we can begin to open that up, both to our brothers and sisters, uh, but as well as to God, then we allow God into even that part of our life, and God's transforming presence and work can begin in that part of our lives. Um, the folks I know that have been in band meetings uh, will attest almost universally that this has been one of the most transforming things that has ever happened to them. And, and as I've known them and watched uh, the changes in their lives over the years, I have to say that I, I, I cannot help but believe them, that they're finding that this is true in their lives. So uh, band meetings were these, these much smaller groups, very intense uh, kind of groups, but they also led to tremendous spiritual growth. Arts of holy living were what we might call a personal rule of faith. Uh, in the orders uh, within the Roman Catholic Church, uh, they often developed a rule of faith, which was kind of a pattern of, of daily life. Uh, you know, the Franciscan order, the Benedictine order. Uh, and, and so the, these rules would, would kind of govern how you would go through your day. And what Wesley did was he barred from that and said, e each one of us should, should kind of develop a, a personal rule of life. You know, this kind of art of holy living. And, and the way that he talked about this to Samuel, he says, whatever I know to do me hurt, that to me is not indifferent, but resolutely to be abstained from. Whatever I know to do me good, that to me is not indifferent, but resolutely to be embraced. Now, this is kind of a hard, hard look at your life and what you're doing and saying the things, the things that are spiritually are harmful to me, I am going to stay away from. And the things that bless me spiritually are the things I'm going to embrace. And, and to do this with a... Uh, a thoroughness and a depth and an integrity um, that, that you know requires us sometimes to walk away from things we dearly love and sometimes to embrace things that are very uncomfortable for us because those are the things that actually are a blessing in our lives it's going to look a little different in different people's lives because we're all different from one another and different things are going to speak to different people uh, different things are going to be a stumbling block to different people uh, so, you know, the, the rule for your personal life is, is something that really you can develop, but I promise you, if you have a band meeting or a class meeting, uh, they can be very helpful in this and helping make sure that you're not deceiving yourself in that rule, that you're actually creating a rule for holy living instead of just doing what you want to do. So uh, it's, it's something that I would encourage you to think about. What is your rule for personal life? How do you put that together? And then finally, works of mercy. 
for, for Wesley, works of mercy was simply the, the practical application of Matthew 25, uh, the parable of the goats and sheep, as well as the great commandment. Um, and he would say, the love of God naturally leads to work of piety, so the love of our neighbor naturally leads to works of mercy. It inclines us to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to visit them that are in sick or in prison, to be as eyes to the blind and feet to the lame, a husband to the widow, a father to the fatherless. Uh, simply to embody those pieces of Scripture uh, in our living. And, and in our DNA as Wesleyans and Methodists, uh, you know, we go back and remember that, that the early Wesleyan crowd, uh, the early Methodist revival and movement, uh, were primarily people at the lower end of the economic scale in Britain. Uh, they were people that didn't have access to health care and to education. And so as, as that began to take hold and they began to provide that, it was a way of living this out, to, to care for people that were not being cared for and, and to lift up people that were not being lifted up. And this is very much a part of who we are as those who walk in the footsteps of Wesley, these works of mercy. Finally, there, there are the general acts uh, uh, means of grace, uh, exercising the presence of God, uh, self-denial, and cross-bearing. These are really about the disposition of the heart. Uh, it, it's a recognition that, you know, sometimes uh, in our faith, we move through our practices kind of on autopilot. Uh, we, we just get used to doing certain things, and they become mechanical. Uh, for example, you know, when we have worship, we always like to have the words of the Lord's Prayer available to And if you'd been here at 930, at this point you would have heard Nick Whitworth laughing because he lost the Lord's Prayer one morning. But, but I always think of back in, in Lano, Texas one morning when one of my leaders got up to, to lead that part of the service and it said the Lord's Prayer. And what he started off, right, is the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he got about four lines into the 23rd Psalm before he realized what he was doing. Now, the congregation all just kind of sat and waited to see what was going to happen. And he finally stopped and he went, that's not right. At which point everybody had a good laugh. And then we went back and did the Lord's Prayer. But, but when we get these things like the Lord's Prayer that become so habituated with us and, and we're running on autopilot, when you get up in front of a group of people to lead that, uh, the tendency is it, it leaves your mind because it's just a habit. It's not really a prayer we're offering up. And this is what Wesley says about um, all of the disposition of the heart when we're in these men's of grace. Um, Andrew Thompson writes, in each of these examples, the power that the means of grace might otherwise convey would be nullified by my absent-mindedness or hardness of heart. With no inward sense of intention, God's grace will never reach me. For grace to really have an impact on us, we must be open to it. And for the means of grace God has provided to act as channels for that grace, we have to have a desire to meet God in those means. That's Wesley's point by saying that we can use all of the instituted and prudential means in a way that makes them useless. So to come back and understand that, that all of those can become useless if they're just habit if it's just going through the motions. And each one of those, we have to be careful to guard our hearts and our spirits, that we enter into those with open hands uh, and open hearts to receive what God wants to share with us. Wesley would remind us, we're encompassed on all sides with persons and things that tend to draw us from our center. Indeed, every creature, if we are not continually on our guard, will draw us from our Creator. 
Somebody has commented that the, one of the sins of modernity is we allow things that are of secondary importance to replace things that are of primary importance. And that really is exactly what Wesley is saying in that comment. That it's so easy for us to get drawn away from God and into elevating other things to primary importance in our lives instead of having God retain that primary importance in the midst of everything. So, so I wanted you to hear that you know, it requires a sense of, of remaining focused on God in the middle of this. It requires a sense of sometimes of self-denial and, and walk, walking against our self-interest, uh, of being willing to give ourselves over to God, uh, of being willing not simply to have our hearts broken, but to have the hardness of our hearts broken and our hearts broken open uh, so that God's Spirit can actually move grace into us and begin the transforming work that God desires to do within us. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for this gift of grace that you so freely offer to us. And we ask that you you give us the courage and the integrity and the intentionality to open our hearts, our hands to receive that, to open that into the midst of our lives, uh, to allow you to have your way with us to transform us from who we have been into who you want us to be and then to invite us into this ministry of the kingdom of God. We give you thanks that you pour that grace out upon us. Help us to open ourselves up so that we may receive it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.